0: Welcome to the Force Matters podcast, powered by Motusi. I'm J.D. Romick,
1: And I'm Jonathan Ang. We're here to have disruptive, inclusive, and informative dialogue at the intersection of technology, research, and clinical practice.
0: Our promise, to sort through the BS so you don't have to. Our focus is what matters to your musculoskeletal health. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Force Matters Podcast. We've got Matt here for round two. We are gonna get into some of the nuts and bolts of running, some really specific things so that we can give you some tools to run away with. Pun pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My husband doesn't think I'm funny all the time, so I'm just playing this podcast and he'll change his mind. Um, So, Matt, welcome back.
1: Thanks, thanks. I feel like round two, we should have a little bell little boxing bell that says ding off we go and I would like to sort of launch a little bit um, as I was saying to you prior to our turning turning the mics back on I'm happy to ramble but I know that that people need practicalities Mm -hmm. Um, and I was thinking about the practicalities of sort of the day-to-dayness of my work that after doing this for 30 something years 34 35 years sometimes I forget about the practicalities because they're so familiar Um, I see a lot of runners in various shapes and forms um, from elite to beginner and I love them all with a a passion Um, but let's be honest I love everybody who wants to improve their movement like most physios do And, um, and I was thinking about sort of a a typical runner who comes through who has tendon pain. And if they don't have tendon pain, then maybe they have some secondary tissue that's been, that's been stressed out by the fact that they don't have tendon capacity, uh, muscle tendon unit capacity. And so how do I get started with that? Um, and I like, to, I like to think of most things on, on sort of a continuum or a spectrum, whichever analogy metaphor works best for people. Um, that at one end of it you can have this irritable, grumpy tendon that you don't really have to do a lot to provoke the symptoms. Mm-hmm. If I had an Achilles tendon, for example, and, and we already know that they're walking in with a limp, I don't need to be doing energy return tests because they can't do a calf raise. So that's quick and dirty. Um, so often when I'm getting people to just warm up, I'm already sliding the scale as to how, how intense my evaluation has to be. Intense meaning, am I at the, the basic range of motion? Am I at the mobility side of it? Am I at the just body weight strength side of it? Or am I looking around the room just trying to pick up weights? Am I gonna to have to pick up an Olympic bar? Can I do this with a couple of dumbbells? Do I need to put them on the force plate to get the power tests done and be able to look at the rate of force development? So I don't have hours and hours with every person. But I choose to take a fair amount of time if I can, if I can carve it out. Um, because I want to try and get as much relevant information as I can in this evaluation. And it really needs to, by the end of the evaluation, I need to have built both a narrative in the sort of the classic sense of it, a, a story that makes sense. But I also need to have built a scientific case that makes sense. And the two run in my mind in parallel. Which is where I think we'll get to as we go through this. That I don't believe you can you can treat these things called humans, and and just see them as tissues. And I know that people don't believe that, but I really think there's a way of marrying this kind of understanding about the biopsychosocial model and a specific tendon problem, um, where the objectivity really is key and helps drive your drive your decision making and drive your um, your rehab. Process your rehab pathway, but there's this person in front of you and they have fears, beliefs, and habits mm-hmm. that have that have led them down a path of movement and movement choices that if you don't get inside their world and understand what that is, then you're just going to be treating a tissue and it's going to be moderately ineffective. It might be effective, but I don't think it's going to be particularly rewarding for that human.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I think if people only treat a tissue and ignore the biopsychosocial, they're ignoring a lot of level one evidence that says we aren't just treating a tissue that even Ruth Schmenti done some work and I love her stuff on Achilles tendonitis, non-insertional. And They use Tampa kinesiophobia scales and relate that to pain. And there is a disconnect that happens between the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system when we have a tendon injury. And if that isn't biopsychosocial, I mean, everything's impacted, not just that Achilles tendon. So it changes the way we think, how afraid we are to move so i couldn't agree more can't get wait to get into that stuff too so if we're talking about your objective or your kind of your evaluation Mm -hmm. you have a runner whether they're novice or elite maybe you assess things differently based on the demands of the person but you mentioned the rate of force development what other what what do you look at walk us through an eval with matt walsh you get a runner that comes in and you hit these things first
1: so, without glossing over it, but not spending too much time in it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the history is everything. Um, and so I'm definitely doing what we're all doing, which is trying to look for, look for the trigger. You know, what was it that started you either on a cascade or was the bomb that blew up? Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding whether it is just a cascade or whether it's a bomb. So whether it's insidious onset or whether it's an acute onset is going to change the way that you're looking at the timelines how they've dealt with those timelines and how their tissues and their body and their movement and their habits and their beliefs have also changed with those timelines. So by the end of a subjective examination, I will always share what I already think it is. I will be completely transparent about, okay, I may be 100% wrong because I'm about to do a physical examination on you and I'm ready to be completely wrong about this, but it looks like there are three things that I'm looking at so far. And I'm going to say, for example, it really does seem like you have an acute or an insidious onset, and I won't use that language, of an Achilles tendinopathy or an Achilles tendinitis, for example. But I'm concerned about there could be a bony component to this. So we're going to have a look at some other tests that might tell us whether maybe you've got a Haglund's deformity, maybe you've got a little bone that's poking on something that's irritating it, that contributed to why you were weak in this tissue, that contributed to why you've had this three times. So we'll have a look at a few physical tests and we might need to talk about imaging at some stage if those those show up as positive and it's becoming a little bit more likely that that's, that's a contributor. The third scenario might be that there's a bursitis. It doesn't look like there's a bursitis just looking at your bare naked foot at the moment. It doesn't look swollen. You're not describing it in that way. The nature of the pain is not exactly that way, but I've seen them where you've either got two problems. You've got a tendon and a bursa involved and by not dealing with the bursa um, we had a slower response or by knowing that there's both things there we're going to have a slower response but that's what we expect and so I'm gonna be able to prepare you better for that decision making and to plan out our summer or our spring because I know you really wanna run like all runners. So acknowledging what that person's angst is that brought them into therapy anyway. Um, So that's the first thing. I go through a subjective, I try and get myself two, three, four hypotheses, and I already start ranking them. Um, and then I say, okay, so what we'll do is we'll do an exam, and let's do the exam. It depends completely on the person, and I, I, I use that word, and I know that always bothers people. That, that you know, therapists who've been on the, on the wagon for a long time will often say, it depends, but it does. Do I have a system? Yes. Is it one that I would put on paper? Never. Because I would always say that system's going to change with every single patient anyway. As
0: it should. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I like to I like to watch people move pretty quickly. I have a little tiny closet of an office, possibly the smallest physical space any physical therapist has ever worked in, um, and I have a great big gym that's outside of me. So if the gym is not chaos, I like to get them out and move. Often I do the movement with them. So we might be saying, I'm just going to get you to just do some thigh grabs, we're going to walk, we're going to lunge, we're going to side lunge, we're going to rotate, we're going to bend, we're going to twist. And we just walk and talk together. Uh, and what we're doing is what they think is a dynamic warm-up. But I'm actually doing my movement screen. So I'm looking at all my lumbar flexions and extensions. I'm getting them to walk on their toes. I'm scanning their neurology. I'm getting them to walk on their heels. I'm looking at l four five. I'm getting them to do little independent movements of their toes to see whether they have the dexterity to do it, but they also have the MTP extension to do it because I want to know whether that plantar fascia has length in it and that might be contributing to why they're loading their Achilles early. So even though it looks quite indirect, I'm already doing my exam without putting my hands on them yet. And then I might say, okay, now let's go back into the closet, (laughs) practically and not metaphorically, Um, and, and then let's do some stuff on the table. And the reason why I often reverse the dance is because people go straight into patient mode as soon as you put them on the on the table or you stand in front of them and they forget to move like humans. And so I can get somebody to show me a squat and I can very quickly see, oh you've been, you've been I wish there was a great term for this, but you've been sort of squatterized. You've been, you've been taken down this pathway of being told what a squat's meant to look like Mm -hmm. and yet what i'd prefer to do is see you do a a walking lunge or squat and a jump out in space while we're kind of moving and talking and chatting and look at what you naturally want to do like can you pick that weight up for me yeah pick that weight up for me and so i'm watching them pick the weight up for me and carry it across the room not let's do a lift ah all right engage my core take my breathing watch my head tuck my chin right you know like drive me crazy the minutiae so I want to see what their natural movement's like once I get them on the table yes I'm going to go through the normal screening of ranges of motion joint stability tissue palpation if I need to manual muscle testing if I've already seen out in the in the gym space they can walk on their toes and they can walk on their heels I already know that they've got the basics of their plantar flexors and dorsiflexors maybe I need to crank on it until I find their max test. And if manually it's not really obvious, then I'm going down the dynamometry pathway and then I'm going down the heavier, heavier load pathway, right? which invariably I am. But if, for example, let's say I did a, just a quick screen on their e-version inversion and they say to me, oh my goodness, that is so much weaker on that side. Then we need to be able to say, okay, do you need a number for us to go any further? Or is that enough to know that that lateral side of your ankle, let's say it's the peroneal test, the eversion test, um, that lateral ankle matches with your history of the fact you've had three ankle sprains and one of those was fairly recent before you started getting your Achilles tendon pain and it's probably contributing. Mm -hmm. And like, absolutely, I'm on board. How about I put a little dynamometer measure on it later on so we've got a number to work with as well but at least we understand that in the narrative it's there. Yeah, yeah. good, done. Um, but if somebody, yeah, that's, that's, that's easy enough to just start there. Then I'm just going to start diving directly into the most important set of tests, which is going to be the progressions of car phrases. You know, as a PT buddy would say to me, it's like, well, it's all just about car phrases. And I'm like, yeah, it is, but there's a lot of nuance in the way that we want it Test them and do them. It's not just as simple as saying, "Hey, just pick up something heavy until you can't," and that's all you need to know. So I'd start with an endurance. I'd have them off the ground. Uh, we'd call it a warm up, and say, "Just just take yourself up and down on your toes." Let's do it to a rhythm of one second up, one second down. We're going to use that later on, and we might even use that with a metronome if we're getting really smart and and focused at the first moment. But invariably, I'm not trying to get to detailed at this point it's like this is screening and warming up and preparing tissue for the what I think are gonna be the load test they should be able to do 20-25 calf raises with both legs they should instantly be able to go and do the same sort of thing with a single leg Mm -hmm. do I spend the time doing 25 double-legged calf raises no I don't I do five or ten you're already happy we're great let's go straight to single leg now if we're talking mid substance um, I could take them onto a, a ramp quickly because I wanna look at what they do at the end of their dorsiflexion ranges. If, if they've got insertional, I'll leave them on the ground and the numbers therefore are different. So if I go to a single-legged calf raise and they're on the ground, I wanna see them get to the 20 pluses. Mm-hmm. If they're athletic, they wanna get up into 30s. If we put them on a slope, 10 degree slope is typically what I use, then I know that I'm gonna instantly drop those numbers. All right, so I'm not expecting 25, 30 anymore. Suddenly I'm expecting 15 to 20 on an athletic population, 10 to 15 on somebody different. And I'm looking for, they should be able to complete about 80% of their range of motion for it to keep passing as a test in my mind. I'm not going to drill too deep into correcting all their movement strategies at that point. I'm gonna watch what they do. And often if I give them the, the non-painful limb first, and when they finish it, I might give them a couple of cues. I might say, well, you did a lot of lateral movement on that one, or you didn't really keep going vertically on the calf raise. You, kept, you started moving forward and pressing onto the wall or hanging onto the table or whatever it was in that movement, or you lost the rhythm a little bit. Can we make sure that when we do the painful one, because we really want to quantify what you're getting to on this one, let's just make sure that you're paying attention to that. So I'm trying to educate them as we go along because we're going to get more and more detailed when it becomes time to turn that into their homework, their rehab. This is
0: great. So far, I'm loving the the max testing, but then it kind of brings up the question, when we're running, we get about, I don't know, seven to nine times our body weight Mm -hmm. through our Achilles tendon. So as far as like dynamic testing goes, you say you get the numbers that you want, maybe their strength looks really good. How do you test the dynamic strength?
1: So before we get to that, let's just say we haven't tested the strength yet. Okay. All we've done is just an endurance test. That's true, Yeah. okay. So then I load them. So then we need to find a true max strength. Now I'm not gonna give people a one rep max, except in an isometric, um, in the first evaluation. I need to know what they look like under load, and I need to know what their history of loading is like. So for example, if somebody has not picked up a weight, and they've already described that they're, they're fearful about lifting weights. It's like, oh, I injured myself doing that in the past. I haven't been doing it much. I just do body weight stuff and I do it two or three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, then I'm not gonna suddenly say to them, what we're gonna do today is find your max soleus test and it's gonna be a three rep max and you're probably gonna be sore for three days afterwards. There's no value in that, right? Which
0: I would even say in PT, doing a one to three rep max people are coming to us injured, I don't mm-hmm. know that we should be doing that anyway. Yeah, exactly. That feels more of like a strength and conditioning, return to sport, now we can find that. Yeah,
1: but and I think you can get to the back door of that by doing the max isometric. Mm-hmm. And that's where, I'll describe a couple of ways in a moment about the way that I like to look at that. Some that are make it easier for therapists who don't have a lot of equipment Versus, versus those of us who have been playing in the sort of the, the geeky side of grabbing uh, extra technology. So if, if I say that somebody has not a lot of history with lifting and loading, I'm going to give them a kind of a movement conditioning slash endurance type test. So I'm still going to load them now, but now what I want to see is I want to see them fail about 15, 15 reps so that I can give them, when, I, when they send them home, kind of my 80% rule of everything in life which is I want you to work at about 80% of your max. So that max will be your max endurance test. It's not a true max strength test until we drop the numbers down and get closer to that one rep or we can do a little um, curve on prediction for that one rep max. So I would start there and I would typically do, I prefer to do isolating things at this stage before I do a more integrated test. I do a soleus test. I just do a seated calf raise. And we have a seated calf raise machine that we can park somebody on, which makes life really easy. Um, where they're just plonking weights on on a on a, mm-hmm. on a rack. Um, but if you didn't have a machine, and you've got at least you've got dumbbells, then you can still do a split stance test, where you put them up, put their foot on a bench in front of them, put a bathroom scale on the bench, so that you know how much weight they're putting on that front leg because that's not the leg they're gonna load. And you basically, they've got feedback now, they can look at the bathroom scale. You want the old school ones, the <laughs> ones that you can actually see the dial, it doesn't keep resetting to zero. Um, and you just say to them, okay, I want you to put 10 pounds of pressure on that, or 20 pounds of pressure, you know, depending on who they are and how stable they look in that position. But keep that the same through this test. And now we're gonna load you up, we're gonna do a slightly bent calf raise off the floor. And we're gonna keep that bend in the knee. Now. Yes, we're doing soleus because it's a little more critical in some regards for a runner than gastroc is. If the technicality of them doing the test is so complicated and it becomes a balanced test, straighten the knee. Get both the gastroc and soleus working together. you better to get the result of the plantar flexors are not able to reach capacity on this side versus your other or you're recreating your symptoms. So they're in a split stance. They're very close to the, to the bench that they're gonna put their foot on so that they can be vertical otherwise they start doing lunges and, mm-hmm. and yeah. that changes everything of course um, it also gives them a lot more security because they're just really standing upright the bench that you want to use or the block that you want to use it should be quite high you'll find that if you put it lower it's tougher to get the test result if you put it really high so then it's kind of like high striding position they tend to be more secure and they can control that little front leg and they can see it better as well so you do the calf raise test let's say they get to 20 it's like well what are you going to do Duh, you're going to add some more weight but you give them the 20 on your other side before you do the test you come back you end up doing about two or three sets before you get your max anyway you've got your max test you go back to the history instantly you connect the result with the history and you say oh, okay now it makes sense why this tissue is irritated because you've got a 20 percent deficit well, do I have to have perfect symmetry to be able to run well? No, you don't. So don't freak out. You don't need to have 0% to get back to running. Invariably, as long as we can get that down to 10% or less, you're already going to be running, and you might even be running with a 20% deficit. That can still be, his Karen silber work, that can be really helpful to just get you running, even if there's a little bit of discomfort, as long as you're in a non irritable stage. So you you instantly take your your quantification your objective moment your I'm isolating this problem and you integrate it in two ways one is to integrate it to the history that brings you full circle back into the why the psychosocial is so important, wow that was a stumble (laughs) and and, um, and then two you bring it back to the integrated form of their movement so you say okay, remember when we were warming up and you had trouble getting into the deep lunge on this side that's because in dorsiflexion you don't have the capacity and so you've learned to adapt and one of the ways you're adapting is your trunk is collapsing into this position or whatever we noted right so you bring them back to that wasn't just a warm up i saw all your movement i saw how all your movement is connecting into this problem not because everything is important but because it can be relevant and if we can clean up some of the the accuracy of your movement when you're loading, it's going to help us translate it into the accuracy and the efficiency of your movement when you're running. So this brings me full circle to, you know, does technique matter when you're running? Yeah, you wanna drive a Lamborghini, technique is gonna really matter. Every little nut and bolt is gonna matter. If what you're doing is just driving your truck around the city streets, it's not gonna matter as much. But if we're talking about forces, forces is directional. And the force that arrives in that tissue depends on what the rest of your body is doing. So if I'm doing a calf raise and I'm leaning backwards, well, the line of force is completely different. So does it matter whether my shoulders are rounded forward, my chin pokes forward?
0: Maybe a little, yeah.
1: If you want to go faster, yeah. If you want to do something for a really long period of time, mm-hmm. Does it matter whether my lumbar spine relatives to my foot is in a particular position? Oh yeah! Now we're getting even more relevant. Where the the center, where is your center of mass relative to your foot? That's kind of important because we know that that the that the sequencing of the way that the foot and the hip, for example, are, are sequenced together, where one has peak power at exactly the time that the other one has the peak pe- peak power, that they are sequenced together. Um, in one being sort of positive on the plan flexion eccentric side of it, the other one being on the on the eccentric of the hip flexor. That that sequencing can be so critical to to the way that we run well, that the same thing has to be true when we're testing. Yeah. Okay.
0: so my first question, the tie-in of the the subjective to your objective testing, when you show those things to your patients How do they usually respond?
1: Their eyes light up. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. There's a change in tone. And I don't mean muscle tone. There's a change in tone of the conversation. There's an inquisitiveness and a a childlike kind of curiosity. And you get this sense that they're, without being too touchy-feely, that their energy is moving now. Now we're in a place where it's like, now we've got something. And so it's really important as a therapist to recognize those moments and to really honor them they just gave you a gift and the gift was you just got free access to the way they think and believe that's going to change their habits and if you let that shit go um, then you just become a technician again i don't want to be a technician i like people too much and i want to help create something that the two of us are creating together that is, that is bigger and better than the two of us. Right? The sort of gestalt of this, we are not just the sum of these two parts, We're, we create something bigger, there's this dialogic between us. And we create this way of knowing something that hasn't ever been before. You've never You've never gone down this pathway before, you've never known what it's like to be injured and have somebody who has your back, like I wanna have your back, so that we can go somewhere where we feed each other because I feel better when you get better and you feel better when you get better. It's like, and you're transparent about that. And I'll feel grumpy if you don't get better. And maybe I can't help you get better completely and you need somebody else's help in this. And that happens a lot with me because I'm a bit of a dummy. But if I can help somebody get to that pathway where it's like, oh, you know, this really helped me understand the problem in a way that now I can change my habits and my behaviors, then we're good. And And it's dropped their pain. So, yeah. so to answer your question more simplistically, the first thing I said was they change their tone, their eyes light up, there's a, there's a difference in the in the volume of their of their speech. They are they often they cut you off and you let them cut you off because they suddenly go, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I just thought of something. Or this makes sense. Or they pause and they look at you and there's this real subtle smile of like, huh this is cool mm-hmm. you can kind of see the bubble pop out the top of their head that they're going they're saying one thing but the bubble's saying something different it's saying like oh i'm on board yeah and you got to acknowledge that
0: and there's something about when people see maybe it's their own data or maybe it's their own results from a test it's like you're pulling back the curtain and showing this answer to the this big problem that they've had maybe it's taken them out of doing something they love or their social circle maybe they go running for fun on Saturdays with their friends and they're not serious elite runners. They just enjoy the social connection and then the social connection's been taken away. So I agree, you can't take away that biopsychosocial because to really make that, that impact, you kind of have to marry the two, like we have to marry their life, what their concerns are with their data. Yeah. So it's science and, and, well, on all levels psychological science and biological science Yeah, i'm glad you corrected yourself yes i was gonna (laughs) say it's all science what's up force matters listeners we interrupt you for a word from our sponsor motusi corporation our engineered athletic wear is designed to be used in any training environment in the clinic the gym at home or in the field We do more than movement analysis. We use AI and proprietary algorithms to generate deeper insights related to movement quality and injury. The Motusi app's 3D Insights immerses athletes into their movement and the insights that help them progress their performance or recovery. But be careful, this tech isn't just for athletes. It's great at those that want to be more active or those that may have a lingering injury or something that's painful, and it gives us insights to be able to diagnose and assess what could really be going on. For more information, head over to Motusi.com and see how Motusi's data is helping physical therapists provide better data-driven care. Now, enjoy the podcast. Okay, so if we wanna get a little bit more geeky into running, Mm -hmm. do you get them running after that?
1: Yeah, if I feel like that's enough quantification for 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 where they are on the continuum so were they at the at the basic body weight end did they need the loading on the soleus to find out their cutoff point did we need to go into um, more of a power test did we see that all of those look good and really we're only going to see the deficits in in their energy return stretch shortening cycle work and if that's the case I can, go down the, I can go down the pathway before I get them running. I can go down the pathway of saying, um, I can use a force plate. So um, in the force plate, I can determine peak powers and I can look at contact times and I can look at reactive strength indexes and so forth. And that's a wonderful, lovely new addition to our practice. Um, and that's helped a bunch. If I don't have that, then I'm going down the jump path. So I'm looking at jumps, and I'm looking at uh, counter-movement jumps, I'm looking at drop jumps, to see how they can do this, whether it provokes their symptoms or whether they simply don't have the capacity to do it well. Now, you don't need a high-speed camera to be able to find somebody's failure point in a drop jump, for example. You simply have to just keep changing the height and say, when can you not keep your heel off the ground? Or, when can you not keep the springiness and get back up onto another box? And it will be pretty obvious they will land and they will crash or they will land and go whoa I couldn't get there Right? whereas on the other side I can get there the other one that I love is when you just do a simple vertical jump on somebody which is a really skillful test it's not isolation for the for the ankle anymore so there's all that componentry of like where is their skillfulness and where is their capacity but now we're looking at the whole system if that's fair enough to say um, I get them standing in front of a plyo box and I generally bring out a couple of them. And I start them on something easy and you see the cockiness, right? It's like, well, oh, duh, this is so easy. You jump up on two legs. You say, okay, now just jump up with one leg. And they go, okay, now he's testing me. Jump up on one leg. And then you look at the big one and you say, jump up in two legs and they get it. But they make a, they make a really quick slap noise when they hit the, hit the top of the pad on this plyometric box. You know, you're already close. Right? And so you take a moment and you say, all right, stand on your good leg. Stand in front of that box. Can you jump it? And if they hesitate for a moment, you already know you've found really close to their max. Because their brain will say to them, oh, shit. Right? It really does. And invariably what happens is like, yeah, I've got this. And they jump and they get it and they do it reasonably well. And then you say, okay, now do it on your bad leg. And they just look at you like, you're crazy. And you go, we don't even need to test it. But if you want, we can test it you're probably going to crash, or we can test it and we'll see that the result is pretty ordinary. So here's our 36-inch player box. Ultimately, I want your bad leg to look as good as your good leg and to have the confidence on both of them that you can do it. That confidence is not as simple as just the strength. That confidence is because you've done the work, you trust the pathway, you now know what the real problem is. It makes sense to you. I want to use that word a lot. Does this make sense? Because sense-making is what we're about. Sense and meaning-making is the sort of the classic human thing, right? How does it all make sense to me? So when the patient says, oh, that makes sense, you don't gloss over that moment. That's another one of those like eyes are up moment. Mm -hmm. If they say, yeah, it makes sense now. So, all right, that's really important. What makes sense to you and what didn't make sense before? All right, they tell you the story. You go, you add a few bits and pieces. say all right now let's let's bring that back to the thing that you really want to do if we haven't been clear about it already you'll set some goals right it's sort of a classic physical therapy moment so what would you like to get back to la-di-da-di-da-di-da right and they might have written it on their initial evaluation but then you want to get to the meat and potatoes of what you really want to do oh i want to run till i'm 80. Mm -hmm. i want to be able to do this particular thing in two years time Do you know what I really want? I just want to be able to get up in the morning and run three miles. And if a friend calls me up and says, I want to run 10, I want to be able to run 10. I want to be in such a good, confident place with my running that I could do three or 10, depending on whether the sun is shining or whether it's Portland and it's raining all bloody day. But do you know what I mean? Like that often they just need to share the the sort of the full multicolored dream coat of of this is really what I want from my running. Because sometimes they'll tell you what they think you want to hear. I want to run a 10K in, in six weeks time, alright that's a goal, great. And then you want to kind of get to the essence of what do you really want. Yeah. Oh, I want to believe in myself as a runner again. I see myself as a runner, that's part of my identity. And when I'm injured, I lose my identity. Mm-hmm. And you know i always take an emotional moment with that i always hear my voice quiver a little bit when i say it mm. and i always try and kind of be very honest and very human with my patients about that of saying like i'm with you like if i can't run it's a big deal right it like really upsets my world because running is one of the ways that i uncouple the day i get to separation And when I'm in a really good place in my running, not only can I uncouple the day, but I can also process the day. (laughs) So I can actually not use this as complete separation from my world. I can use it as a place where I can solve some problems and talk about things in my head and go through them.
0: It's really interesting that you say that because one thing that, you know, when I would mentor students or I work with, obviously patients in the clinic, I'll look for those moments of what is my patient actually saying is their problem why are they actually here to see me Hmm. because yes pain is one thing but if they come in and you aren't measuring any psychosocial or you're not kind of taking account of you know what is this patient saying to me they mentioned to you that well their dad and their uncle and their grandpa have always had bad knees or they've always had one had to have an ankle replaced. It's like they, they bring up these fears of this is going to be my life, and it they catastrophize, and they take it to this place of, yes, my identity has been taken from me, but also I have these other layers of fears. And sometimes it's they want to be heard and they want to be validated that they're not either A, gonna go down that horrible path that the rest of their family has because genetics don't always predetermine our destiny in fact they're like 2 to 4% of you know how we end up so it's just they bring all of this baggage and and they just want to be heard and if you miss all of that if you miss that that moment like you're saying to connect those those two i think we're like you're saying we're practicing as technicians and i really do feel like if we talk you know top of license practice we can't practice top of license if we're unaware of the psychological implications of health compromises so
1: yeah i totally agree you and with agree with you and i think that um if we use the phrase the top of the license the top of the license is that you are comprehensive and if you're really good at getting to the you've got a really thorough examination maybe you've got a system that you've learned and and the reason why you like that system is because it allows you to gather large amounts of information about that person and get to the essence of what is most critical for them making a change done to do that well and to do it quickly and efficiently you've got to practice that system a lot so this doesn't happen in you know your first year when you graduate typically unless you're a genius But it allows you, when you're efficient at it, it allows you to have more time, not more time to just see more patients. It allows you more time to spend that time doing things that have to take time. Talking to somebody cannot be fast dialed. It cannot be speed dialed is probably the better term. You you have to allow there to be pauses. You have to take the time to let people talk. You have to let things be messy until they go, huh, I just spent five minutes talking about this, but i realized what I'm really trying to say is that. And I hadn't ever thought about that before. You know, we've all done some forms of therapy, whether it's with a friend or whether it's with a counselor or whether it's it's having had treatment ourselves for, for various ailments. And one of the grand benefits is to be able to hear yourself actually say what your problem is or to look at the data and process it right there, and then with somebody else. So if you don't get to process it properly, and for some people that takes takes time, then you're going to miss stuff. Now you can you're in a practice where somebody else is telling you that you've only got 30 minutes, or you've only got 20 minutes, or like when I was in Canada, you've only got 15 minutes, and you've got to get these things done really fast. What you learn is you learn you learn fast tricks, right? For and you learn ways of connecting the dots of saying, okay, we touched on this and this and this, your homework is to go back and really think about that. And I want you to write some stuff down. And if you wanna share it with me via a text or something along those lines, or you can send something through the portal, we can actually have a bit of a a loose dialogue conversation or process this in a different way, shape or form, or we can just bring it up next time. But next time I see you, I want you to bring me some questions. And those questions, are going to be, yes, about the exercises that we gave you, which is why you thought you were here, but it's also going to be about how it feels, the practicalities of what it's been like during your day, maybe how it's impacted your sense of self in other ways. And you just leave that open. And they're like, sense of self in other ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: right? So you you might start this dialogue in a way that, that you can still do what the system is telling you you have to do practically to get paid at the end of the day, which is, see X number of people and get them through and measure it up and pass it on to an assistant, and all those things, you can still do it. But wouldn't it be nice if you could carve out a way to put spaces into your practice or spaces into that session or maybe the next time you see them, you double up the time a little bit or the way that I would often do it when I was really busy in a practice was that I would say, come see me at the end of my day, It'd be my last appointment. And they're like, why? Because I want to spend as much time as we need to get to the bottom of what we need in the next session. And so that might mean I'll spend a little extra time with you. Now, is that patient going to always be your best mate? Absolutely. Because you've just <laughs> carved out time for them saying, you're you're important. Your problem is so important to me that I will, I will make extra space for it, for whatever you want. In the same way that, patients come in and they've filled out their evaluation forms and you acknowledge that they've said these things I see that you said this I see that you've said that but what I really want from you at the moment put the paper aside put your computer aside look at them and say I want you to tell me as much as you think is relevant to this story I don't care how far back you need to go go all right and let them go for a while now it doesn't mean oh shit they're gonna talk for an hour It does mean you're going to give them the opportunity to say, "I need to spend more time talking about this than I thought I did." Like, let's let's table that for next time. That's really important, and we need to do this evaluation. We'll chat more about that in a second. But you can come back to it. You can see how it works that way.
0: Yeah, because I feel like we get stuck in this mindset of like we're not therapists. That's not our. That's not our. um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? That's not our scope of practice. Our scope of practice. Thank you, Mm -hmm. but. There is such a component of psychology to movement that I think if we miss that, we're going to actually miss the boat on treatment. That doesn't mean we need to know all types of cognitive behavioral therapy, psychotherapy. We don't need to be well-versed, and I think we can refer out, I don't know how much you refer out with your runners. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd like to get to some of that is like how do you coach your runners that have maybe more of like that biopsychosocial um, implication to their recovery. but I would just I would argue that being knowledgeable of some of these techniques, whether it's motivational interviewing, mm-hmm. even just the biopsychosocial model in general, having some type of continuing education around it is vital to just being able to connect with our patients a little bit better. So when you do have one of these runners and maybe you know maybe we've kind of touched on it enough, but um, just thinking about, how do you manage that example of a patient who's not bouncing back? You talked about it in your last episode of that, that patient you had that didn't quite have that springiness and you had to kind of dial back her plan of care because she wasn't recovering as well as she should have been or she wasn't where she needed to be.
1: So if, if, if I understand the question, we're sort of getting back to the practicalities of at one end of the continuum, this particular runner, didn't have that energy return component Mm -hmm. okay Um, I'm still going to I'm still going to bleed in the biopsychosocial here for a second I'm going to say that I'll give you an example that I'm doing some force plate testing the other day and what I'm looking for is whether there's a significant deficit in the in the stiffness that they can generate off the ground the the reactive strength index so contact time versus verticals and I realize that the cueing that I give them changes the result instantly. So I can get them to sequence their movement completely differently by the words I choose Um, and by the volume of of the cueing. So we can play with the numbers and we can have the numbers sitting right in front of them and they can have a reactive strength index of, let's say 0.35, 0.38 in that sort of zone. And I can get them up into the 0.4s immediately by just saying, I want you to think about being stiffer, all right? You are a stiff spring. So I give them an image that they can they can bounce back with. Pardon the pun. So their numbers <laughs> change instantly, Right? Then I'm like, that's good, but that's not the best you can do. Like, I want you to do this, like go for it. We're gonna use this as our metric for how much we determine how much you should load and shouldn't load. So it's really important that you give me everything you've got. Can you give me a little more? And suddenly we get 0.5 like well if I'd taken the 0.3s and had s- said that that was their test result I would have had this massive deficit that we've been looking at and all it was was a queuing difference okay so we go back to them saying to that person what stopped you from doing this the tough test right at the very very first moment well I'd already d- decided that this was my painful side I knew that the result was gonna be weaker I actually They almost sounded a little bit like Eeyore, right? It's like, well, this isn't (laughs) gonna be good, right? And you're like, yeah, I guess not, you know? And so we all agreed that this was gonna be a bad test on this side. And so what do we do? We manifested our truth and we got a bad result. It's like, wow, look at that. You've got a shocking deficit between the two sides. All right, well, it's just gonna be a long path, I guess. Instead of going, actually, you have the capacity to do much more and the deficit is only really small. and we got there when we put it all together in a sharp, explosive movement. And it wasn't more painful, it was the same pain. All right? Okay, so now we know that we have to train at that intensity to get you back to being confident when you're running. And we need to pay attention to the cueing of what you're doing, because if we'd stuck with the initial cueing, we wouldn't have got a result. So how do I, how do I know, to dial back, I check myself first that I've actually got the best test I can get. I'm still sticking with the numbers. I need to know that that test is a real test. Otherwise, I can, I can find whatever I want. You know, we've all seen the sort of applied kinesiology results in the world mm-hmm. of like, oh, look, I do intervention A, and suddenly your straight leg raise test is suddenly very strong, look at that, fantastic. And I use the strong voice when I do it, now. test, oh, that's good, you know. Well, that's just, cloak and dagger you know that's just smoke and mirrors I guess is a better better use of the term so I think that um, we've got to be really good with our testing we have to recognize that every test that we do is a biopsychosocial test because every time you ask somebody to test something to their limit they are going to predetermine consciously or not whether that limit is a safe place to go to or whether there might be pain involved or whether they're going to disappoint themselves or you, you know, all those sorts of things. And so you need, to, you need to just acknowledge that. Okay, well this is a test today and it's the first time you've ever done this test and you were worried about it being painful and it was painful. So we don't expect the results to be great. I think you're stronger than that, mm-hmm. but there's pain involved. I think you're stronger than that because this is the first time you've done the test. I think you'll get better at this. If we tested it in 20, minute time, 20 minutes time, we'd probably get another result but let's just call that what it is today and we'll test it again next time. So you can put the test in context and they can recognize now when they have good days and bad days as well that they know that that's probably not just that the tissue's fallen apart.
0: Yeah, I like that language that you put to it as well because it gives PTs listening, PTAs, whoever's listening, kind of some tools to approach this kind of like this biopsychosocial... Um, maybe they're not getting the best objective test and they don't quite know how to approach that with the patient because we all want our patients to do really well. But to have kind of some of those fail-safe, um, that language is and sometimes,
1: great. Sometimes I think we want our patients to not do well. <laughs> think mm-hmm. about that for a second. I, I don't think I've really ever said this out loud, but, but if, if you don't do well on a test, it supports my theory. Mm-hmm. Makes us look good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, this, now, I'm, now it all makes sense to me. And we want to get to the end of this evaluation and know that it makes sense, right? We want to feel good about, they've come to me, they've paid money or put out insurance world claim for this. And I want to make sure that my, my I'm valuable. And so if my theory doesn't work, if there isn't a deficit, well, what do I do? Oh, God, I'm exposed. Instead, if you go back to the, the time where you put out the three hypotheses,
0: mm-hmm.
1: one of them might be that we don't know what it is. One of them might be that this is gonna be a process of data gathering and learning and moving forward in all the things that we can move forward until we find out what really is going on. Or maybe we just get a result and we don't exactly know how we got a result, but we got a result. And it's not until later on that we recognize something. I've had patients come back to me you know, months or years later and say, well, I found out I had such and such. Oh, even though I got better, all this was going on. It was like I had I had this other scenario going on. It's like, oh, okay, fantastic. Yeah. And they're not they're not spiteful about it. They're right. not like, wow, you wasted my time.
0: We say that. Yeah, say we're that, like, you know. we're wasting your time. We have to get to an answer. Otherwise, this person's not going to come back. They're not going to buy into me. The hardest things that I've said to a patient is, you know, I'm still I'm still trying to decide between a couple of things, and that's okay because we think most people come in, they want an answer. And if they don't get an answer, they're not gonna believe us. They're gonna think we're full of crap because we at some maybe level believe that we need to have all these answers and it's our own insecurity coming out. To me, it's kind of refreshing to hear a provider. It gives me more trust in them to say, you know, I'm not quite clear yet, but we're gonna try these few things. I'm not gonna give up on this because I think I you know I have a few hypotheses and I think I need to give them a little bit of time and shake them out as we as we work together.
1: Agreed. Pain so. pain muddies the waters. It does. And and so often I'll use this image. Um, folks who've worked with me would probably get sick and tired of me seeing my hands in this particular position, where I have one hand high, and that's the pain and the current level of function. Mm-hmm. All right, this is this is where you're at at the moment. But especially the pain is up the other level is down low which is what you what you can't do all the things you can't do you i can't run i can't do this particular activities i can't come downstairs painfully you know because it's painful etc cetera, etc cetera. and down at this lower level is also your strength or your mobility or your skill set and i kind of work in that little triangle of feeling like there's a dance constantly between the technicality of your movement, this, brings us, this will bring us back to, do I watch people run? Yes, I do. Um, the, the mobility of their movement, do they have enough range to actually get through the, the pattern in the way that they want to? Or the strength, and strength we've already talked about on the sort of a continuum spectrum, not just pure max strength, but energy return or, and or endurance. So if their pain is up, and their function and strength is down, Sometimes the best I can give them in that first evaluation is to say, I think that if I improve all this strength and skill and mobility, that your function will change, but it might not because pain muddies the waters. And so often what ends up happening is it's like, are you making progress? Yeah, I'm getting stronger. I can do these things more effectively. I'm more flowing and smooth in the movements that I've got. My range is improving, but my pain is the same. It's like, keep fighting the good battle because a, the story might make more sense if we add more information down the down the track. B, once your system is has more capacity, and capacity not just strength, capacity to know that it can endure, to know that it has range, to know that it has skill. When all those things come together, then invariably pain becomes better localized and less muddied. Mm-hmm. It might be, oh, it only really hurts now when I do this, and it's more in the specific location so you know a tendon problem should be very well localized but when a tendon problem has been around for a long time you might have secondary sites of pain that make it look like they've got multiple problems but really there's just this disbursement of poorly organized pain recognition in the area for all sorts of other reasons and they start perceiving that little tension that they get in their capsule as being painful or that little bit of puffiness after the flight as being inflammation, you know, and right. it goes on like that. Yeah. So, so I, think, I think that allows you as a therapist to go, I don't have to know that you have this problem with exactly this story that led to it. You can say, we know that the effects of this story, are that your strength is down, your skill is poor, your mobility is gone. And that has affected your running that you love to do and is painful great yeah. now let's change those components that we can it doesn't mean you have to treat absolutely everything you find you know you still have the bullseye approach the problem is right there at the achilles tendon most of your effort should be down there but there might be some other peripheral things that add to it
0: yeah
1: so You've done really well today at letting me talk an extraordinary amount. Yeah. Making (laughs) making me talk an extraordinary (laughs) amount. But I think it brings me back, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it brings me back to do I then watch a runner run? Mm -hmm. Um, And I I intentionally wanted to kind of get away from the idea that all my answers come from watching them run, that really so much of what we do, you don't need to watch them run. There's so many variations to the way people run anyway, We know that that's okay Um, we would be better to watch them run with much more information Mm -hmm. so that i can say oh look you have an interesting little flick on the same side that's painful you turn the foot out significantly differently okay that's because i think that hip that's had problems for years where no longer has any internal rotation in that neutral position doesn't allow you to extend your hip just like the Thomas test that we did that showed you that you couldn't extend your hip so now when you ex- finish your stride behind your body and you're trying to release that energy that's been stored up in the Achilles tendon and finish it that you push in a sagittal plane which is the critical plane you don't have the capacity because of this mobility restriction proximally and so that tendon no longer has the ability to express itself mm-hmm. fully and so movement is occurring in these other ways oh, okay do, we, do I want to change that? Do I want to point my foot straight? No, 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 no. We just want to try and give your body the, the ability to do it more efficiently like it did before you were hurt.
0: Yeah.
1: So I do watch them run. I, I, I look for the big obvious things first. So to borrow a, uh, a phrase that, two phrases, that my friend David McHenry would always use. Um, one is I'm looking for low-hanging fruit. And the other one is that I'm trying to make you a more robust runner. So I'm going to improve your capacity so that you can tolerate this thing well. And I'm going to look for the obvious stuff. I'm not going to look for the minor details of two degrees of calcaneal version. I'm going to look for, do you actually put your foot underneath your body when you hit the ground? Do you have good carriage of your upper body? Do you flex and extend your hips, knees, and ankles in the way that they should? Mm-hmm. Do they look like they're sequenced together fairly well? Do you have high or low cadence? Um, does it... Do you hit the ground with a lot of noise and a lot of force? I don't even need to have a force instrumented treadmill to know that, you know, we can hear it, they can feel it. Like all those sorts of simple things. And then I might have some freeze frame moments that I do with them where I look at particularly the sort of key components in the gait cycle. Initial contact, maximal loading and mid stance, and then terminal stance and mid swing. I just look at those four phases and I take a few freeze frames and say, These look acceptable. These look like they're a long way from where I'd like them to be, but they're symmetrical, or they're not symmetrical. Mm -hmm. Um, And we try and give it the sort of the general, general overview without getting them down to, you know, do I need to change that cadence by five strides per minute? Yeah, maybe. You know, we could go and explore that a little bit.
0: Because correct me if I'm wrong, runners can be a little bit obsessive in their form anyway. So giving them more things to think about you know and i wonder if somebody's had an injury their entire lives versus they have this really acute thing they've never had a tendonopathy or tendonitis before do we need to change their entire running form likely not it's likely like you said last episode even is these kind of errors in their training where either they run too fast too far too soon in a way they haven't been training or they switched up their footwear and it's causing them you know on these longer miles to have um, just a lot of overuse because the shoes kind of um, cueing them to run differently so it's a drastic change with no time to really get used to this new input so i think that's those are really good takeaways from that i did want to give you an opportunity if you want to mention anything else about biopsychosocial if you want to mention anything else that you measure If there's anything that you feel like we didn't really hit on Because you said you've been talking a lot and I know I've been letting you go and trying to interrupt less But is there anything else that you top of mind want to share?
1: I think that um, when I when I Look at the way that somebody um, explains their history to me um, the thing that I'm often looking for is, is the truth in their habits. We talk a lot about beliefs and people can profess to believe something, but their habits are very different. Now, often they're aligned, that's great. You know, if you're, if you're that evolved that your beliefs and your habits are, are in line with each other, then brilliant. And that can be still dysfunctional, but at least you're aware of it and that's, that's great. But for a lot of people, we don't do that. We know that we are meant to be doing A, B, and C, but we don't do it. Um, My stepson, Elliot, shout out to Elliot, who will not have listened to this, I don't believe, unless I send it to him. We'll send it straight
0: to him. (laughs) Send it straight
1: to him. Um, Sent me uh, something, I sent my wife and I something, um, a bunch of months ago, which is something that he'd found about longevity, And and he said, you guys should look at this it's all these attributes for sort of living a long life and they were you know health-based and spiritual and community and all those sorts of th- things that we could talk about but we'd be sidetracking significantly but the thing that was interesting was that I before I dove into it I had this feeling that it's like oh I know what things I'm meant to be doing to live a long life and I wrote this list down of all these things I was meant to be doing and and then I went whoa I know what I'm meant to be doing, but what am I actually doing? Really actually doing is watered down versions of a lot of those, right? And I think our runners talk about strengthening for example, or talk about taking rest days, or talk about having great nutrition. But then when you get into the to the nuts and bolts of it, they're actually not doing it. And so having a sense of humor with them about that of like, you know, wouldn't it be great if we actually did what we were meant to be? doing and we know we're meant to be doing. How often do we fail in that? And then let's find the reasons why we fail. There's a lovely guy that I saw yesterday who uh, had an ACL reconstruction and he um, has just kind of seen me three times since his his ACL reconstruction. He had some insurance-based PT stuff that he was doing and he would just kind of come and see me once every couple of months to have a second opinion, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And he's describing how he's got two little kids and he's a freelance, um, writer I believe and the practicality of him being able to stick to programs is not that he's a bad person, it's just reality he's daycare and you know, top chef and money earner and husband and all these sorts of things, all these hats that he has to wear you know, you know this
0: life balance, life balance doesn't stuff. exist <laughs> Yeah. And
1: so being able to say like okay, on this page is what we would love to do and on this page is what we have been doing and now we're gonna rewrite another page, which is the sort of the, the, the helpful practical solution to how we put that into our daily life. And, and keep a sense of humor about it. Like the reality of like, hey, by the way, it's just running. <laughs> it's just something yeah. that we wanna love because it makes us feel good and we're happy and we're healthy when we do it. It's not, even if it is our job, even if I'm a professional athlete, it's your job for now, but is it the job that's gonna define everything that you do in your life it doesn't matter whether that happened or this happened on this day maybe not it might be a little bit more important as to you know what you take from this you know when it comes to the X number of years down the track so putting it in the day to day perspective is probably the, the big thing that I think yeah. I, I come back to of what they actually do versus what they say they want to do yeah and help and, them with that.
0: and it helps develop some empathy too because I mean we're all human and knowing that you're again, someone who has their back and understands them. And I always open up with, you know, what does your physical activity look like currently? And then you say, judgment aside, you know, maybe there's a version that you'd love to be doing. And then there's a version that is realistic for you right now. We go through different seasons. So be as specific as possible because it's gonna have implications on what we do for our plan of care.
1: I like the I like the judgment aside comment. Yeah, I think that's great. It's yeah,
0: it's important because you immediately see people like this kind of ashamed. Like, mm. I know I should be exercising, and it kind of takes that off the table. Because I've had the reverse happen where someone overestimates to me how much they've been doing, and upon initial objective evaluation, I know immediately that they didn't tell the truth. I've had someone close to vomiting, doing the simplest things. And I feel horrible because I've overestimated what this gentleman can do and he's told me how active he is. And there is a lot of shame, I think, mixed in with the way we think we should be living our life. And the word should is one I think we could redact from our vernacular. Yeah, good call.
1: The time. I think that the other thing to remember is that, you know, we're, we're digging into one end of it deeply. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that training error is, is a very, very, very common source of yeah. Why a lot of these people have been happily running for a long period of time, and then things started to fall off. And there's a lot of there's a lot of um, over analysis in the in the care runners I would agree with that. that can basically take you down this path of like, oh my goodness, you have so many problems. It's incredible that you've been able to run with these wheels, with right. these hips, with this problem, with your core like this, with your posture like that. And sometimes that actually patients love being told that they're a mess. Yeah. They love being told and they'll often bring their list of their their 32 therapists that they've seen and who they're currently seeing and all the problems that they have and my rib is out and this is up and
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's a problem and I'm really terrible at this and and but it's all gonna, you know, it's all work that's good work. And they sort of wear it like a suit of armor, but but the armor is made up of all their faults and their problems. Mm and sometimes what they need is they need somebody to simply say you just did too much yeah that's all it is and so yeah. you know buy a new pair of shoes reward yourself in that fashion have a fresh start take a little break do some light strengthening but get back on the bus you know and just yeah. start start heading back into it again yeah you know? and so yeah. not being too overly complicated like i don't want people to perceive that We've dug into this biopsychosocial side of it, but I really want to be clear about a lot of the time it really just is about the quantification thing, but just see the, see the person in front of you as you treat them like a number and acknowledge that. You don't need to go deep into the weeds if, if really all it was was you kind of made a silly choice. Mm-hmm. You decided to race this race that had all this vertical to it, and you hadn't really been doing any hill training. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you got patellotendinosis Right. Or you got patellar tendonitis, a true inflamed tendon yeah. right off the bat, and then what you did was you took two months of rest. Okay, so now you went into weak mode, but really the problem was just you just decided to run this hilly course without training. So let's break that habit somehow. Yeah. Of why was it that you chose to do that? Like why was that so so needy? Why was it so necessary for you to do that particular run? Oh, I'd paid 150 bucks and you know I didn't want to waste the money and you know it's an indulgence that I have we're tight on our budget and it's like okay that's what it was yeah that was a trigger yeah. it was an honest mistake you just wanted to take the trip that you would paid for and go and do the race and you weren't really prepared for it because the kids were driving you crazy and you weren't getting the training right. and bang done
0: and it just beautifully ties back into i think the subjective or the history taking is such an important piece of what we do our patients usually tell us 80 percent of what we need to know which Mm. is why you come out with those two to three hypotheses you're like okay based on everything that this patient has told me this is likely the problem but i think so often we skip over it and we want to go right to pain we want to go right to tissue damage and we miss we have this cool little diagram on the board and maybe we'll screenshot a snippet of it but in the biopsychosocial model the tissue component is only small piece and if we just chase pain we miss all this stuff it was probably just a training error and we need to modify their training for a bit and get them on a better path um i think it can just be that simple
1: yeah yeah agreed
0: um we've been talking for a while so i'm happy to we (laughs) we can end our part two chat here but i think we need to come back for parts you know three four five six (laughs) down the road we really enjoy just your Well-rounded approach because so much of what we do here on force matters is we dive into the objective and the nitty-gritty and sometimes the subjective objective components are also Equally as important especially when it comes to a technical sport like running. There's so much that ties in there So thank you for sharing your time with us this morning. Thanks for having me on Um, Appreciate it anything else you'd like to share anything fun You've been learning or listening to that you want people to learn and listen to
1: I've been digging into um, things around perception, action, coupling and and listening to a lot of coaching podcasts because I I realize that a lot of what I do is try and behave like a coach. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that coaches are incredibly smart human beings uh, in the way that they navigate individuals and teams Mm -hmm. um, and create amazing learning environments for them and all with movement (laughs) Uh, and then you throw in the the nuances of competition and everything that that gives to a kid or an adult whoever it might be Um, that's been fascinating so so listening to that and realizing that that the way that we the way that we manifest our movement is so much about the contextuality of it so it's like an ecological approach to, to looking at movement where you, you are responding to the environment. And so I work a lot at the moment with, with runners, but particularly with trail runners. I've got a sort of a larger group of trail runners that I see here in Portland. Um, and recognising how they not only have to interact really in such amazingly complex ways with a trail and then put an endurance event on that, and then put other runners in it and then put their perception of where they are in the race and where they wanna be in the race and what they perceive as happening and then they put pain in the system. How do you coach them through that? Mm -hmm. How do their coaches coach them through that? How do you use training to teach the resilience and the logical problem solving that has to go on in the body and the brain and the mind when that's happening is fascinating to me. And I'm still involved in loosely in this version of of rugby called touch rugby here in the U.S. Um, It's everywhere in the world, but it's sort of fresh to the U.S., so to speak, Um, that my son plays and that I used to play and I used to coach. And I'm still sort of involved a little bit peripherally in that. But thinking about the way that we coach a team sport is also fascinating because a lot of what you do is based on your movement relative to the opposition's movement. And sometimes that's reactionary and sometimes that's, um, it's a creative dance. You're trying to basically move the opposition in certain ways to create shapes and patterns and skills that allow you to finish and get a result. And that playfulness to that and that, that like, where are we in the dance, uh, yeah. you know, are you meant to be dancing with me or am I trying to basically leave you, you know, and disappear from you? It's not all about just running over the top of people or crushing through gaps or putting the ball in space. But how it all happens one-on-one and then how it happens in small groups is really interesting to me at the moment. That
0: is interesting. You mentioned yeah. Craig Harrison as someone that you listen to. Craig,
1: is, a, is he's not in the perception-action coupling stuff. He's more about the coaching side of it. Okay, the coaching. Yeah, he's a Kiwi. Um, does a lot of stuff with youth development okay. uh, in New Zealand. Um, um, just, I'm a little bit enamored with the New Zealanders and their approach to movement. But also with their approach to kind of the way they bring community and culture and into into their day to dayness, that is probably easier in a smaller country Mm -hmm. than it is in the US. But but really, um, gives me hope. Yeah, that we can do similar things here, or that it's happening in similar ways in small little yeah. pockets in Portland, for example.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. So, perception-action coupling. What should we tune into, or where do you where are you getting your?
1: Just drill. Just drill into that title. Okay. And there's a there's a couple of series of podcasts that will come up. There's um, a researcher out of the University of Arizona, and I've gone blank on his name at the I moment. I think
0: I saw him. I was looking it up on yeah. the on Spotify because. You mentioned it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Rob Gray. That's it. Yeah. Rob Gray. Yeah. 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 And then, um, yeah. So tune into that if, mm-hmm. if you're driving uh, with what Matt is saying. But otherwise, Matt Walsh on Instagram. Is it Matt Walsh DPT? What's your, you know, do you I don't, know? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think is. you've got glasses in your photo and <laughs> short I? hair, shaped head. Okay. But um, thanks again for sharing your time with us today. Cheers. And can't wait to see you next time. Till then, keep moving.
1: You've been listening to the Force Matters Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in and really want to hear from you.
0: If you have questions you'd like to hear answered on the podcast, you can find us at motusi.com on our blog page or DM us on Instagram at motusi corp. See you next time. And until then, keep moving.